let's pray before we dive into the Word of God this morning. Father God, as we open up Psalm 105, Father, we realize that we have come a long journey. Many of us have come through sufferings and through hardships, Father. God, I pray that at this moment, in this morning, as we look back, just like the Israelites did back on Genesis and Exodus, I pray that we will see how far we've come and how you've been with us the whole way. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. So a lot of people don't know this, but about every April and May, some kind of unexplained depression sets in in my life. Just a little bit of a testimony from your pastor here. Um, and for years, it took me a while to kind of figure out what was going on, why I, why I hit some kind of slump, uh, why it feels like roads get rocky, why I kind of just hit this moment of deflation. And it dawned on me that it was April, May of uh, 14 years ago, actually, this year, uh, that my brother died in our living room. It was 29 years ago that my dad was diagnosed with leukemia. And about that same time that I was preparing to tell him goodbye, that the doctors were trying to explain to me death and all this kind of stuff as an eight, nine-year-old. And so here I am, you know, 29 years after my dad's leukemia, 14 years after my brother's death. My grandfather died at the same time. And I look back at that now, and I see things completely different than the way it looked when, when I was actually going through those moments. Um, for some reason, in God's sovereignty and his pastoral care of me, uh, I stumbled across uh, The Horse and His Boy. If you guys are C.S. Lewis fans, you know that there's several books in the Chronicles of Narnia, and one of those books is called The Horse and His Boy. And um, I actually enjoy that book far more than I like any of the other books. So today I'm just going to kind of read to you the story that God pastorally allowed me to stumble through. And I promise it's long, um, but we're going to be able to tie it into Psalm 105. So if you'll just hang in there, try to imagine reading this with me. This is your own personal audiobook version of the book. Um, and so we'll just dive in. In The Horse and His Boy, there's a young boy named Shasta who was left riding on his own. Riding quietly in the fog, he began to think back on his life. He had been abandoned as a baby, raised as an orphan, mistreated by his foster father, became a runaway, and had been harassed by lions all through his journey. The painful memories caused tears to run down his face. Suddenly, he became aware of a giant thing walking eerily beside him. Because of the thick fog, he could not make out exactly what the thing was. And unsure of whether or not to be afraid, Shasta questioned the mysterious companion. Who are you? The thing answered back. One who has waited long for you to speak. Shasta asked further, are you a giant? You're not something dead, are you? The strange creature then breathed on Shasta's face and hand. Just hear it. There. That is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrow. Shasta then recounted the entirety of his unlucky journey, how he never knew his real father or mother, how he had been chased by a lion and met a friend named Erevis. He told the creature of his terrifying night among the tombs and how he was haunted by wild beasts at every turn. He lamented about how they were almost at their destination when he and Erevis were suddenly chased by yet another lion who then wounded his friend. After listening to his story, the thing responded, I do not call you unfortunate. Shasta replied, shocked. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions? 
There was only one lion, said the voice. Shasta in amusement countered, What on earth do you mean? I just told you that there were at least two, two lions, and on the first night, and the thing interrupted. There was only one lion, but he was swift of foot. How do you know? Shasta asked. I was the lion, the strange voice replied. The voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you as you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you could reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion, you do not remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay as a child near death so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight, to receive you. Overwhelmed by all this, Shasta asked the lion, Who are you? Myself, said the voice, very deep and low so that the earth shook. And again, loud and clear, Myself! And then the third time, Myself. Whispered so softly you could hardly hear it, and yet it seemed to come from all around you as if, it le- as if the leaves were rustling with it. Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him, nor that it was the voice of a ghost, but a new, different sort of trembling came over him. Yet he felt glad, too. The mist was turning from black to gray, from gray to white. This must have begun to happen some time ago, but while he had been talking to the thing, he had not been noticing anything else. Now the whiteness around him became a shining whiteness. His eyes began to blink. Somewhere ahead he heard birds singing. He knew that the night was over at last. He could see the mane and the ears and the head of his horse quite clearly now. A golden light fell on them from the left. It was, he thought it was the sun. He turned and saw, pacing beside him, taller than a horse, a lion. The horse did not seem to be afraid of it, or else it could not see it. It was from the lion that the light came. No one ever saw anything more terrible or more beautiful. The high king above all kings stooped towards him. Its mane and some strange solemn perfume that hung about the mane was all around him. It touched his forehead with its tongue. He lifted his face and their eyes met. Then instantly the pale brightness of the mist and the fiery brightness of the lion rolled themselves together in a swirling glory, and gathered themselves up and disappeared. He was alone with horse on grassy hillside, under a blue sky, and the birds were singing. Now, C.S. Lewis's story about Shasta's encounter with Aslan carries immense theological significance for Christians. How many of us have ever felt like we're in Shasta's position, riding alone in the fog, can't see where we're going, feel alone and we begin to feel sorry about all the things that we have gone through. We look back at all the past, we begin to recount them and we lay them out one by one by one. First was the, the divorce and then came the death of a child and then came the death of a beloved parent. And this is on and on and on and on and we begin laying them out. What we find in C.S. Lewis, what Shasta had interpreted to be a plague of lions was actually the preservation of the Christ-like Aslan. Whereas Shasta had believed himself to be abandoned and unlucky, 
Aslan revealed the truth that there that Shasta was never really alone, that it was the lion who was driving these things, the lion who was doing these things, not to hurt Shasta, but to help him. All along the way, guiding him, turning him, preserving him, protecting him so that Shasta would come to the place that he needed to come. In the same way, we sometimes feel wounded. We feel punished. We feel abandoned. And yet there will be a day we'll be walking in the fog and it will just happen. We'll notice the presence of someone walking beside us. And though right now we don't see him clearly, there will be a day that the fog will lift and we'll realize when Jesus, our Aslan, turns to us and says, there's ever only been one lion. I have been with you through it all. Can you imagine the day that your deepest, darkest sorrows you can turn back and look at as a moment of being as something that will cause you to rise up and give thanks? Think of the think of the funeral that brought you the most heartache. Still to this day, it just aches at you and hurts at you and it eats away at your soul. And there's just some kind of some kind of stirring in your heart that just is wounded and painful. Right. When you think about it. And yet the Bible promises that there will be a day we will look back on that moment and we will be grateful and we will not have chosen it to be different. Because all of a sudden the fog will lift and we will remember that Jesus, sovereign God over all, used that to preserve us for his place. The same truth is presented to us in Psalm 105. The Lord is worthy of our worship and praise because he preserves his people. And brings them to his place. I hope you, you each have your own stories of suffering. You each have your own experiences of what it's like. You have your own wounds. And nobody else's sufferings and pains compares with yours. That's true. All of us are unique in that. But there's one thing that we're not unique in. We all have the same healer. You might not have lost a brother. You might have lost a son. You might not have lost a a son. You might have lost a husband or a wife or whoever it is. Whatever that wound is, whatever the hurt is, there's still one doctor that heals us all. Sure, your pain may be incredibly painful that there's no words to speak about. We have all been in pain. We have all been suffering. But yet we all find healing at the same source, at the feet of Jesus Christ. Every wound every painful history solved in the redemption of jesus so we're going to go through psalm 105 i promised it would be light this morning it won't be um you know there's sometimes that we dive deep into the ocean to dig for pearls and then there's other times that you just let your convoy your envoy just float back to the top let's stare at our pearls and lay on our backs in the sun and float right um this is one of those sundays that we've been diving deep every sunday in exodus for pearls well, now we're just going to take our collection of pearls. We're just going to float on our backs on the ocean and look at the pearls we found and admire them. So I hope you enjoy Psalm 105, and I hope it is a healing medicine for you. Psalm 105 recounts the works of God among his people, particularly his faithfulness to give them the promised land. As we will see, the psalm opens with a call to worship and the reason why Israel should worship their God. It's bookended by a promise, by one single promise In verse 11, it says, to you, I will give, future tense, to you, I will give the land. 
And then it ends with the statement, and he gave them the lands of the nation. So that's the, that's the theme that is going to be popping out. How God promised to give them a place, and then how God gave them the place. Additionally, as we work our way through this history, the psalm is going to show us how God has provided and how he has cared for his people at every turn. It was not all smooth sailing. This psalm is very optimistic and upbeat. It's very joyful. And yet, when you think back on it, it's filled with pain. This was not, this was not filled with good times here. I mean, we're talking about the, the fact that we're singing it praises to the God who sent his people into captivity for 400 years. It's not smooth sailing. And yet, the psalmist is showing us that because of God's redemption and God's sovereignty and God's faithfulness, we can look back at 400 years of slavery and death. We can look back at children being thrown into the Nile River. We can look back at the Pharaoh punishing the people of God and say, praise God, he's faithful. Now, how do we get there? We're going to see. As we'll see, these tragedies, these miseries, these misfortunes all get reversed by the sovereign God. It's interesting that David sang this song, at least the first 15 verses of this song, while he was carrying the ark into the tent of Jerusalem. That tells us that David himself is looking back on Israel's history and going, look, he's brought us here. David looks back at the patriarchs. He looks back at the Exodus. He looks back at all the history and he sees, he's just visibly seen this ark that was created at the Exodus. This ark being brought into the temple and realizing that God has been with them at every single turn. My friends, sometimes the greatest act of worship that we can do is to stop thinking about what problems we might face tomorrow and instead to replace those thoughts with what God has already done yesterday. Have you ever thought about that? When you think about trusting God and we think about faith, we tend to put a future tense to it. God, give me the faith as if we don't have it. All right, God, give me the trust. God, be with me tomorrow. My friend, sometimes it's an act of worship to stop saying that and to say he has been with me. To look backwards is immensely refreshing. You can look forward, but you will not see anything. You do not know what life has in store for you. It could be better. It could be worse than you anticipate. There is no point in being anxious over what lies forward. The greatest act of worship is to display your faith by looking backward. That's what we do as the people of God. We worship God, what God has done. And then we express our confidence that he will keep doing what he has done. He has redeemed. He has saved. And he will keep doing so. He does not stop. So, as we get to the psalm, we see it's a bit lengthy. There's 45 verses, and I have 45 minutes. So that's a minute per verse, right? Um, won't stick to that, but we'll get there. Uh, part one is, is broken up into the, the, the first 11 verses. The psalmist calls the people to worship, and he gives them the reasons to worship. I have this outline in your notes if you're, if you're wondering about it. Part two, which is verses 12 to 45 recount Israel's journey to the promised land. And verses 12 to 22, Israel's patriarchs are uh, preserved in their sojourning. They were homeless wanderers, right? So we go from homelessness to verses 23 through 36, where they're slaves in Egypt. And then we go from Egypt to back to homeless wandering again. 
in verses 37 to 42. And then finally, in verses 43 to 45, we make it to the promised land. So we're we're tracking with Israel. We're, we're tracking them on the map. Homeless, slaves, homeless, home. That's how we're getting it. Okay. And in every single step of the way, God is with them, preserves them, protects them, loves them, cares for them. They do not hunger. They do not stumble. They do not die. So let's begin in this first section, the call and reason for worship. He front ends the psalm with application, whereas most of us are kind of used to application being at the end. Let's talk about the theology and then we're going to talk about the application. The psalmist actually flips this on its head. He front ends it with application, calling the people to worship. He uses a variety of terms. And and if you have a pen, it's totally okay to do this in your Bible. Just highlight these little verbs. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember. That's a word to circle. Remember the wondrous works that he has done. His miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham. His servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. By beginning these, this psalm with these exhortations, the psalmist demonstrates what should be foremost on the minds of God's people. Specifically, everything the psalmist calls the people to do in these verses are, guess what? Joyfully God-centered. These are not sad verbs. He's not saying, all right, guys, we're going to glory in the holy name. Now he's saying glory in the holy name. He's, he's telling us to be joyful and to be God-centered. There is lots for God's people to talk about. You don't understand what I've been through. You don't know what my week has looked like. And yet the psalmist says, stop talking about that. Talk about the joyful God-centeredness of his redemption. My friends, we, we talk about a lot of things, don't we? I'm a pastor, so one of the first things I'm supposed to say, and I sincerely mean it, but one of the first things I'm supposed to say when I see you is, hi, how are you? How was your week? Right? I'm at least scripted to say that. Um, Sandra Smith hands me the paper, reminds me to say that. So, hi, how, how, how are you? How was your week? And then I get a number of answers. Some of them are scripted themselves. Ah, oh, fine. Sometimes people go into this long list of things that have happened this week. My friends, one of my problems that I have when I think about hi, how are you question is I far too often fail to mention God in my hi, how am I? How am I? Wait, I'm, I'm saved. How am I? I'm set free. How am I? Wait, I, I'm, I'm an eternal institution. I don't die. How am I? Have you ever thought about turning your thoughts to this is joyful God-centeredness, that the first thing out of your mouth is what God has done? There are plenty of things to talk about what's going wrong. But talking about how God has redeemed us is far more noble, far more honorable. The sweetest songs you can sing are not sad songs. The sweetest topics of your conversation, the best topics of your conversation are not about the little things in your life that have gone wrong. 
The best topics of conversation is about God and what he has done. My friends, we didn't have trash cans in all the bathrooms this morning. I didn't, it took me 15 minutes to figure out how to unlock the door. I didn't get to eat a donut today. Just leave that on the table. <laughs> My friends, we are, we are typically people who point out what goes wrong more than we talk about what goes right. Now, that's not to make light of the suffering that we actually do go through. There are people who have lots and lots of heavy suffering that words themselves cannot lament. But the reality is, is even in this moment, that's relatively good. There's much to celebrate, right? I'm, I'm right now complaining about not getting a donut because I didn't get a donut. Instead of, Represent, instead of reflecting and witnessing what God has done. My friends, if, even if it's smooth sailing for us, we tend to talk about how hot it is. And the fact that we're on a boat. <laughs> and then when the storm gets rough, we're just ill-prepared to talk about God because our lives are spent talking about the negative. My friends, we are negative people, and Christians should not be. So if you're on this end of the scale that you complain about everything, my friends, you are not not thinking about the joyful, God-centered redemption that he has worked in your life. I mean, yes, you can nitpick everything. But God's still bringing a perfect new world. He's still going to get rid of sin, death, hell, and abortion, and racism and all these things that plague our world. He's going to get rid of all those things. And then you may be on this side that you're actually that, that there's real pain in your life, pain that you could have never imagined before. Even in that, we are called to a joyful God-centeredness. Death itself should not steal our joy. Loss should not steal our joy. My friends, God can rewind death. God's people do not decay. We are eternal institution together. Have we ever thought about that? But why? So, so it's one thing to preach at people. Hey, you just need to talk about God. You just need to talk about God, right? Well, that's, that's fair. I would never say that to someone, by the way, that's suffering. Hey, you need to stop talking about your sufferings and talk about God. But I would at some moment in time just pray. And remember that God has worked and is working. We, we could do nothing better than to just stop, even in this moment where we don't see God, just to stop and talk about the fact that God has redeemed and we can glory in that. And the fact that sin and hell itself cannot hold God's people because we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. But God, being merciful, made us alive together with him. And we have a promise that not one of Jesus' people will remain in the grave in the end. Not one of them. Every single tombstone will be toppled over when the saints raise their heads out of the graves. Verses 7 through 11 give us the answer for the reason why. He is the Lord our God. 
His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. Just in our terms, he remembers his promise forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. Now, the first reason that he says that we should worship God and praise him is simply that he's the Lord, our God. That's, it's easy to supply. He's the Lord, our God, right? Let's slow it down. He is the Lord, what? Our God. Have you ever taken time to take stock of the personal pronouns in the Bible? He's not a God. He's not just the God. He is our God. The Lord is not a God who is distant, but he allows us just... Just let this blow your mind for a second. The God who made the sunrise this morning is your God. The God who spoke the Milky Way into existence is our God. He allows himself to be personally owned by us. Right? It doesn't mean we have control of him or anything, but but he allows himself to belong to us. It's absolutely okay to say, my God. My Lord, our Savior, he's ours. Moreover, his judgments are on all the earth, which speaks of the sovereignty and his sovereign reign over all things. All the earth serves as a testimony that he is the owner of it all. Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. The God with whom we enjoy a personal relationship with is the same God who is sovereign over everything. Every raindrop that fell yesterday was sent by a sovereign God. Every cloud that threatened to bring down a tornado in the middle of Ovilla was sent by a sovereign God. He is king over everything. And yet he's my God. That's the reason why we should worship him. One of the reasons. Our God. It's like saying, that's my dad. My dad is king. That's the gospel message for us. That Jesus died so that now we can have a personal relationship with God. The same God, by the way, who's the author and creator and architect of all history. But then there's a second reason. And it's related to the first. This sovereign king who allows himself to be called our God is also the God that remembers his covenant forever. Very simply, God's people should remember all that God has done because God remembers all of his promises. Why should, why should we take time to remember God? What reason, what motivation do we have? Well, very simply, because God doesn't forget you. We remember what God has done because God remembers all of his promises. Even that, even if... For a thousand generations, that's a long time, for a thousand generations, even if we don't see God's promises moving, for a thousand generations, we can trust that God will not forget. I forgot what the date of VBS is after five minutes of being told. God doesn't remember my name, doesn't forget my name a thousand generations after I'm gone. God doesn't forget his covenant to dwell with his people forever and bring about a new heaven and new earth a thousand generations after you die. 
God does not forget. He remembers. And therefore, we praise him. Now, what covenant is in mind? I think in particular, he's thinking of this covenant, which he says uh, that he made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Israel. And it was a promise given to each of them that he would give them the land of Canaan. Now, if you've been with us in Genesis and Exodus, you understand why the land's so important. We're not talking about just the little track of Israel that I'm going to get to go visit next week, by the way. Um, that's great. It's important and all that. But the fact of the matter is, is that this idea about land has to do with God's presence being established with his people. That's what makes the land so important. This is a place where God's people will get to experience his walking back and forth with them, hear his voice, worship him, obey him, have a personal relationship with him. What does that sound like? Should sound very similar to what land? The Garden of Eden. So in this promise of land, the people recognize that this is going to be at least a partial restoration of what they had in Eden. What they lost in Genesis 3, God is possibly going to give back, going to partially give back through this promised land. Now, if, if you were back in those days and you heard that promise, I will give you a land, I will give you the land of Canaan. There's no one that wouldn't have chuckled. Abraham's an old dude. He's elderly. He's a homeless wanderer with no children, no prodigy. He's an old guy. You mean that guy is going to conquer all the land of Canaan? Isaac was a mother's boy. Sojourner was too too shy to even go get a wife for himself. Okay, um, was sojourner wandered from place to place to place. If he went and dug a well, and other people came and said, "Hey, that's mine," he's like, "Okay, I give it up. I don't want to fight. We're gone." You know, I mean, that's Isaac for you. Okay, he went to three different wells before he finally found one that a bully wouldn't show up and drive him off from. And then you get Jacob. Well, Jacob's a cheater, man. He's he's the wicked of the wicked, and he gets exiled out of his father's camp because his brother threatens to kill him. I'm not betting on that guy to inherit the land of Canaan. But then to make even matters worse, we fast forward into Israel. They're slaves. You're telling me, if you were to tell me that slaves are going to rise up and overcome the world, the ancient world's superpower, once again, I'm going to think you're back crazy because it doesn't happen that way and yet this is exactly what god's promising it's exactly what god's promising that he will give this unlikely people a promised land and despite all the odds he's going to sovereignly give it to them now we get to the record of preservation this is verses 12 through 45 it's totally dedicated in the second section just to walk us through Israel's history so that we can see how God kept his promise, how he proved true and faithful to his people. We get to the first part, verses 12 through 22, which tell of the patriarchs and their journey. Now listen to the description of them. They're, they're completely vulnerable. They were few in number. So this is a large army of people. They were few in number of little account. They're unimportant people. That's what it's saying. They're few they're unimportant we don't even recognize them and they're sojourners and then he depicts homelessness when he dis, when he says that they wandered from nation to nation from one kingdom to another people now in the ancient world if you were a sojourner you were you were the lowest of the low you were dependent on the mercy of your host they were often oppressed they were often sold into slavery 
They were often brutalized, victimized, all that kind of stuff. They were, as sojourners, you had no rights in this land. This isn't a time when they're establishing embassies to protect the rights of national citizens. No, this is a time when you're on your own. If someone in the home country wants to come and slaughter your family and take your gold, they can do it, and there's no one there to stop them. And yet, despite the fact we get this 90-year-old Abraham who's got all these sheep. I mean, he's baiting the desert. Despite the fact that we have Isaac, who doesn't even have a shelter to run to, Jacob, who's exiled in the promised land, he's exiled from the promised land. God says he allowed no one to oppress them. Here's what it's saying. They might have been landless, but they were never lordless. God was their shield. As long as they had the Lord, they had a shelter. As long as they had the Lord, they had the sword. As long as they had the Lord, they had a shield. They didn't need a physical sword. They didn't need a shield any more than David needed armor to face Goliath because they had the Lord. And even with nothing, they had everything because of God. I mean, just just think of it. God rebuked kings. That's what the psalm says. God rebuked kings on their account. We think about Abraham, 90-year-old Abraham, chasing down the armies of Kedor Laomer and whooping them. That's a theological term. We have it. Whooping them. We think of little old Isaac, right? And Abimelech, this mighty king, coming and bowing down before Isaac and petitioning him for peace. We think of the Hittites looking at this frail old man who has no land, who's absolutely homeless, and they call Abraham a prince of God among us. Jacob, limping, walks in the Pharaoh's court, and who asked for whose blessing? Mighty Pharaoh asked for little old Jacob's blessing. Verse 16 says that God sovereignly summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread. God sovereignly called the famine. Now, at this moment, you know, I'm, I'm look, reading through the psalm. We're going to see some more of this. He, he, he sovereignly called this, the famine. He sent Joseph. And the way he sent Joseph was by sovereignly allowing him to be sold as a slave. Right? Did, did, did God cause Joseph to be sold as a slave? I don't think he led his brothers into sin. God doesn't tempt sin. Tempt sin. We know that. But did God sovereignly allow Joseph to be sold into slavery? We have to answer absolutely yes, because it says it here. He sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Now, from a human perspective, I'm looking at this. I'm thinking the God of the Bible is no good news. He he summons famines. He sends his people into slavery. And yet the message of the psalm is despite all of these unfortunate turns and twists, Despite all these moments of going, man, this is unlucky. It's at that moment that the psalmist reminds us that this is God working out his plan. It is a providential pain. It describes Joseph as he suffered, his feet hurt with fetters. His neck was put into a collar of iron. And yet, according to God's promise, he was still sovereign. Now, here's the message of so I, if, I, if I'm thinking about why would a sovereign God allow all this to happen, 
I think it's because he's proving something to humanity who reads this. I think he's showing no king is mighty enough to wipe his people out. No king. Kedor Laomer, with all of his invading armies, cannot defeat a 90-year-old Abraham with God. Abimelech, king of the Philistines, has to bow and sue for peace. Please don't hurt me, little old Isaac. No king is powerful enough to wipe them out. No famine is widespread enough to starve them. No prison is deep enough, thick enough to retain them. God's people are undestroyable. I guess the actual word would be indestructible. I do that just to see if you're paying attention. Can you, can you imagine just the truth of that? And these people have been through it. And they survive. Psalm 105, we're just sitting there scratching our heads. How? They should have been dead in the desert. Abraham should have never made it off the battlefield. The first famine that came around, they should have died in the, in the wilderness. But Psalm's not done yet. Verses 23 through 36. Israel came to Egypt. And it says, just as the sovereign Lord, who was the one who summoned the famine, he also, and, and who sent Joseph as a vehicle um, to bring them there to Egypt. So also the Lord was the one who multiplied his people in Egypt. And he turned the Egyptians' hearts against his people. That's odd. He caused the Egyptians to hate them. Once again, I think... I think God's showing off here for a minute. Yeah, I'm going to make the mightiest superpower in the world hate you just so that I can display that I am God. I'm going to submit my people to 400 years of slavery so that I can prove to all the earth that there is no God but God. God's a sovereign God. God is the one at the helm, not man. Man Men make their choices. Men sin. Men choose against God. They choose to rebel against God. But I think we are foolish if we think that God was not sovereign over what the psalmist is seeing here. He's declaring it. God summoned the famine. God sent Joseph by slavery. He caused the Egyptians to hate his people. We'd have to do theological gymnastics to describe that in any other way. I'm not flexible enough to bend that around man's sovereignty. God is king. And the whole purpose of it all is to show that whoever has his presence is preserved. Whoever is his people survives. Now we know because of our study in Exodus that the Egyptians dealt craftily with Israel. They enslaved them. It was 400 years. Now just imagine, just for that moment, put yourselves in their shoes. 400 years. You're just counting the years. There goes year 359. There goes year 375. There goes year 380. When, when is the land coming? Do you think you would have the ability to hold faith for 359 years? I don't have the faith to hold faith for 60 days sometimes. I feel like if I were thinking humanly about the Israelites, and I, th- I think this could be true. I think there were some Israelites who had given up on all that long ago. 
I think there's Israelites that would laugh at any mention of freedom. I mean, seriously, how, how could they as slaves be set free from the mighty superpower? They see Pharaoh's chariots. He's humbled the Hittites. If you know your world history, he's leveled every single army that has come from them. How in the world are they going to get out of it? Nevertheless, as verses 26 through 36 show, not even mighty Pharaoh was able to hold the people of God. He sent Moses to do his wonders. And if you've read it before, you know those plagues. He starts to recount them. He sent darkness. He turned their waters into blood. He, it was by his word that their land swarmed with frogs. He spoke and there came a swarm of flies. He gave them hell for rain. He struck down their vines and fig trees. He spoke and the locusts came, which ate all their fruit of the ground. Then as a climax of all the plagues, he struck down the firstborn in their land. And little by little, he starts to show as God's mighty sledgehammer comes down on Pharaoh's head, crushing, crushing. I am God. There is no other. I am God. There is no other. And then one final smash. There is no other God. And then we get to the part where they're just about to become wilderness wanderers again. The Egyptians begin to pay them to leave. The Egyptians who we would have thought they couldn't have ever escaped. It says he brought out Israel with silver and gold and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. And then when while Pharaoh was trying to hold them down, the rest of the Egyptians were glad when they departed for dread had a dread of them had fallen upon it. Can you imagine this mighty general Egyptian general charioteer watching the Egyptians going, going, Whoo! I'm glad they're gone. I thought I was going to die. That's exactly what's happening. Dread falling onto the Egyptians. So now they're once again out in the desert. They're once again without a home. They're once again without food and water. But who led them through the desert? God did. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give them light by night. Who fed them when there was no food? God did. They asked and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. Who gave them water in a waterless wilderness? God did. He opened the rock and water gushed out and it flowed through the desert like a river. At every turn, the Lord protected and preserved his people cared for them, gave them everything they needed. Why? Because he remembered his holy promise. Verse 42. And Abraham, his servant. And so the list grows. No homelessness, no enemy kings, no famine, no Pharaoh, no hunger and thirst could hinder God's promises. God preserved his people through it all. In the final three verses, we see how Israel made it home. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. He gave them the land of the nations and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil. Safely home. The psalm began with the promise to you, I will give the land of Canaan and it ends with and he gave them the lands of the nations. What God promised, he fulfilled what God said he would do. He accomplished despite all the improbabilities. There's none of it. I mean, think about us. Uh, who watch football games. There's none of us that would have bet this would have been the outcome. And God did what he said. And that's the purpose of this. That they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. And then it ends with praise the Lord. 
Now this tells us what God envisioned for his people. He had brought them into the land so that they would obey and worship, which should sound similar to work and keep, right? They're going to be like a new Adam, working and keeping, serving and obeying, worshiping and, and keeping the law of God in the new land. And they're going to be there as the people of God in his presence. Now, if you know your Bible well, you know Psalm 105 is not unique. You know that this is one song that goes on top of a list of other songs that we know that speak of God preserving and protecting his people. Exodus 15, for example, verse 13 says, you have led your uh, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. It's the same message all over again. We hear the the melody ringing out in Psalm 23, which sings of our shepherd Yahweh, who leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness sake. Listen to this. Even though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Same consistent message. And it's the same song that we will sing in Revelation 15. When we sing of the, the song of Moses and of the Lamb. And in this, we have a lyric. From Psalm 105, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. The psalmist is not some super spiritualist who does things that we can't. He's modeling what we will do at the at the sea bank. As God brings us out in that final deliverance, when we're exited, when we're exiting out of the world. Proclaiming God, we've been saved from the beast, we've been saved from the devil, we've been saved from sin, we've been saved from the lions of the world. And as we sit there and the waters begin to settle and we realize that our enemies are dead, we begin to sing, great and amazing are your deeds. Death itself floating on the top of the water, a dead carcass. And every loved one we have lost is with us. Every pain wiped away. Sin, our sin, the the porn addiction, the drug addiction, the alcoholism, floating dead carcasses for wild birds to eat off their flesh. We're free. Now the question is why? Why is it that we have this promise? Who is protecting us from starving in, in the famine of God that currently plagues the world? Who is walking with us through the wilderness? Who delivers us from our spiritual Egypts? Is it not Jesus, our shepherd? Is Jesus who said, I go to prepare a what for you? A place. He said, if it weren't so, I would not have told you. He said, I wouldn't even mention it if it weren't true. I'm going to prepare a place. That's not just metaphorical. There's a place for God's presence where we will dwell. He is the one who said that he will lose none. None, not one of any that the Father has given him. Man, that's assuring, right? If we're Jesus's, that means there's not one of us that are going to be lost. He's not going to be like, whoops, he fell off my plate. Whoops, he slipped out of my fingers. Not one gets lost in the shuffle. Not one of us remains dead. Not one of us remains in sin. Not one of us remains remains pestered by the devil. Every single child of God delivered in full. That's the promise. 
And he did this because Jesus, like a Passover lamb, was slain. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life from the sheep, and yet also the good shepherd who laid down his life and took it back up again. Christians, we are an exodus people who have been delivered and preserved for a place in God's presence. Your road through the wilderness is filled with dangers and pains. You may think that there is no one that has ever experienced the turmoil that you are currently going through. And yet, despite the thick suffering of it all, there will be a day that you will look back on it and your pain will be turned into praise. You don't have to believe me now. But when that day comes, I'll very happily and joyfully tell you I told you so. Because God is sovereign. God is good. And Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. So with that, we look back on our sufferings. We look back at our long road and we say, oh, give thanks to the Lord. He remembers his covenant forever. Let's pray. Father God, I know that there's a lot of suffering and struggles in this room right now. I know that there are a lot of people uh, who are going through cancer diagnoses, Father. There are some here who are going through painful marriages, Father. There are some here uh, who sense their need for counseling to find hope past their dark, deep, dark past, Father. There are some that are in fear of the future, Father. There are some that are worried about finances, God. There's some worried about beloved family members. God, there are some here whose heart is quaking underneath the weight of the pain. God, I pray that you will restore joy to your people. Father, I don't ask that you'll make them happy in their suffering. But I pray, Lord, that you will help them to trust you in their suffering, knowing that even someday, just like Joseph looked back on his prison cell and saw the sovereign God at work, just like Israel looked back at Egypt and saw the sovereign God at work, that we will look back at our deaths, that we will look back at the funerals, that we will look back at the job losses, that we'll look back on the empty bank accounts, that we will look back on the pain, we'll look back on the cancers, we'll look back at the brain tumors, we'll look back at all the losses that we have done, and yet we will still sing and praise Oh, praise the Lord. He remembers his promises forever. And God, I pray that that joy will be restored to your people, even in the deepest, darkest moments of mourning. I pray this in Jesus' name.